these summer days, we are looking into the Psalms, having completed our series in the book of Deuteronomy. We're entitling this series, Psalms for Summer. Last week, we looked at a royal psalm that dealt with the sovereignty of God, the control of God over world affairs and events. Today, we are looking at what is known as a psalm of lament. Typically, psalms are divided into psalms of praise and psalms of lament. I oftentimes find that when people come into worship services, they will, on occasion, feel lonely. Not because they're without friends, but rather they assume that their experience right now separates them from everybody else. Nobody else is going through what they are going through. And so when they hear songs of praise being sung, and when they hear statements of rejoicing being shared, and they are experiencing the burdens and the heaviness of a heart dealing with the difficulties of tough relationships, tough work experience, tough life, they wonder, is there, is there something here for me? David opens up his heart to those who struggle sometimes singing songs of praise by offering us in six verses a song of lament. For those who wonder are praise songs the only operative for worshiping God, David would say there are also songs of lament that equip people who are going through difficult times in life to still offer their worship to God. And this is one of those psalms. So I'd like to begin reading in verse 1, down through verse 6. It involves a time where David's life is wearisome, difficult, challenging. Saul, who is the king, is chasing David down. David is wearing down, and he's wondering if he can keep on keeping on. And maybe that's where you're at right now then your heart's going to connect with what David is about to share in his word. For in Psalm 13, he pens, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. So we want to look at these verses this morning because they deal with reality and they deal with the delays of life when for some reason or another God's timing is different than ours. If that's where you're at, we're going to examine this and see how it connects. But let's look to God in prayer. So our Father, as we're coming before you now, we are coming before you as people who... Admit the fact that not always does praise flow naturally from our lips. 
We know you're worthy of praise. Sometimes the difficulties of life seem to slow down our willingness to offer praise. We've got to ask why and how we can work through these issues and overcome them. So we thank you for David, who's so real to us, and who offers us a psalm of lament to guide us through the difficult times that we sometimes find ourselves in. So, Father, guide us as we think your thoughts from your word as they, we apply them now to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why the delay? That was the question of George Danzig. He writes, I was a senior at Stanford during the Depression. We knew that when the class graduated, we'd be joining unemployment lines. There was a slim chance that the top man in class might get a teaching job, but that was about it. And I wasn't at the head of my class. So I hoped that if I were able to score a perfect paper on the final exam, I might be given a job opportunity. He pauses to swallow, blinking tears back that are beginning to flow from behind his glasses. In his interview, he goes on, I studied so hard for that exam that I ended up making it late to class. Oh Lord, I prayed as I walked in, why the delay? Why couldn't I get here sooner? When I arrived, the other students were already hard at work, and I was embarrassed and just picked up my paper and slunk to my desk. I sat down and worked the eight problems on the test paper and then started in on the two that were written on the board. And try as I might, I couldn't solve either one of them. And I was devastated. There went my job opportunities. Out of the ten problems, I had missed two for sure. But just as I was about to hand in the paper, I took a chance and asked the professor if I might have a couple days to work on the two that I had missed. I was surprised when he agreed. And I rushed home, plunged into those equations with a vengeance. I spent hours and hours and finally solved one of them, but I couldn't get the other. And when I turned in that paper, I knew I had lost all chance of a job. Oh God, I prayed, why was I delayed? It was the blackest day of my life. Ever gone through some black days of delay? This is where David is at in this psalm of six verses. It's a psalm of lament. But astoundingly, what you are going to notice with me is that each stanza builds off of the previous. Each is a stage in his spiritual pilgrimage towards a closer relationship with God. That we find out by the end how he was able to manage his delays in a way that could honor his Lord. So if God's got you on hold this morning, 
in a holding pattern. I want to think through this whole matter of delay carefully with you. Because you'll notice with me four times in the opening verses, he asked the question, How long, O Lord? Did you spot those questions? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long? The question, how long, is the issue of duration. But notice he will ask how long not to his friends. He won't just pose these questions aimlessly at his circumstances. No, with the question of duration of how long, there is also a statement of direction. He directs his question toward God. And notice again, it's capital L-O-R-D, the personal, covenantal name of God, revealed by God to Moses at the burning bush in the book of Exodus. Now, if you are wrestling with the how long question, make sure you are asking how long, O Lord, when you pose that question. Because this is the first of three stages that I want to unfold for us this morning from this psalm. In stage one, I'd put something like this. In challenging times, number one, we must pose our difficult questions to God. Not to others, to God. Not just to family members, to God. But make certain that you are taking into account His name. Here is Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D in the Hebrew, the covenantal relational name for God, not just a generic brand. Because you don't have a generic God. As he begins to pose his questions, he knows he can ask God the critical questions because God alone has absolute answers. Now whether or not God will give answers to those questions is a separate issue. But the reality is, is that he knows who has ultimate answers to life's most significant questions. So he poses four critical questions. To God. The first question is what I will call the question of being forgotten permanently. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Notice the phrase forget me. There was a time where David truly sensed the presence of God. And it energized him. But now he's being honest with you and honest with me. He's saying, in reality, now I sense the absence of God. And I am, for the lack of a better word, de-energized by this situation. Ever been there? And maybe you look back and recall a time where the presence of God was so real and profound. It was as thick as the dense air at night as you're driving along Lake Michigan. 
but now it seems dry and absent and you're wondering how you can bring back what you previously had. There is something very challenging in life when not only you are confronted with life's difficulties, but you are being confronted with the sense of God's absence. Yet go on and notice the next word he tacks on forever. Will you forget me forever? I notice that so many times... The difficulties of life are when we make what's permanent temporal and when we make what's temporal permanent. And he feels as though this is a permanent state that he will be in for the remaining days of his life. The days of his life will be the delays of his life. What David is going to have to come to grips with is that a delay is not the same as a denial. And that in God's time, a delay is part of God's design. But a delay is not a denial. When God says, wait, it's not as though God said, no. And the great people of faith in the Old Testament and the great leaders of the Old Testament were people who had to learn to wait on God. There's a difference between patience and passivity. I have gone through four building programs, three building programs. We may enter into our fourth at some point, God willing. Gone through building construction again and again. Or the acquisition of land. And what we have found in each case is that we had to wait upon God, but not passively, patiently. Patience is constructive. Passivity is destructive. Biblical patience is etched upon the face of uh, Abram as he waits by faith upon God to fulfill his promise regarding a son. Waiting is etched on the faith of a man named Moses in the wilderness as he waits upon God to return him to Egypt only to send him right back into the wilderness where he will have to learn to have invested those previous experiences rather than wasted them. Waiting. A delay is not a denial. And we can't become disappointed with God in the process. D.A. Koss, a former professor of mine, writes, I bought a copy of Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God. Could not help noticing that the publisher had pasted a yellow label on the dust jacket. The label reads, 100% money back guarantee. If for any reason you are dissatisfied with disappointment with God, return your post paid with receipts to Zondervan Publishing House for a complete refund. He writes, It appears that we are allowed to be disappointed with God, but not with books about disappointment with God. 
What we have to begin to do is to make distinctions here about what am I truly disappointed with and not confuse God with life. You can become disappointed with life, but life is not God. And we don't become disappointed with God because God sent His Son to die for our sins. So we learn to wait as we take our stand in God's grace. And Carson will help us to appreciate that. But there's a second question here. How long will you hide your face from me? The question of the hidden face. They sit in my office years ago. She's looking in one direction. He's looking in another. They share the same last name. But they don't say, share the same direction for when it comes to their future. They're pulling apart. Even though they were joined at an altar. David now is wrestling with the fact that it seems as though God's face is being hidden from him. And he's, his face is, is hidden by choice. How long will you hide your face from me? Yeah, what David's doing at this point is this. He is beginning to diagnose his problems through his questions. He realizes that some vague generalization of life's problems will not be the best way to prayerfully come into God's presence. So he defines his problems through questions. He states his issues in question form, not rooted in doubt, but rooted in faith, because he began, How long, O Lord? The personal relational name for God. He's not going to allow the duration of his challenges to create distance with his God. To you? What he's doing at this point, when he talks about the face of God, is that he is drawing upon the rich teaching written down in a previous generation by Moses, where Aaron was told to give a benediction in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26, that goes like this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. It was a Saturday night. Four years ago. I told Pam I was going to go down to Elmbrook for their late afternoon service. I knew Stuart Briscoe would be speaking. I normally am not out on Saturday nights, so I wanted to get back early enough so I could prepare my heart before I'd get up to speak. At the end of the message, Stuart had the congregation that Saturday night stand, and with his 
With his eyes bent over the word and his hands lifted up, he said, And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you as he lifted his face at that moment. And be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you, he went on, and give you peace. And I heard a woman just to the right of me sigh. And as we began to leave our pews, she just turned to me and said, I needed that. I needed that. David needs this. He needs God's face turned toward him. He needs God's face to shine upon him. He needs that sense of grace to re-energize to a life being worn down by life. Do you? You know, God can handle your questions. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? It's a pre-secure God who can allow a psalmist to pen those words for all time. He could handle your questions. How long will you hide your face from me? This is not a question of doubt. It's a question rooted in faith. Rooted in God's word, Numbers chapter 6, delivered to Aaron to communicate to Israel. Third question. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Every day have sorrow in my heart. Notice there's an internal wrestling match. Is that where you're at right now? You're internalizing this battle. And in this wrestling match, he's wrestling with his thoughts while he's experiencing sorrow in his emotions. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? And it's almost interesting enough to pose here. He asks how long at the beginning of verse 2, and then he says every day later on in verse 2. That's where he's at emotionally. He's pitting what he knows against what he feels. What he knows is he needs to ask how long. What he feels is though it's going to be every day. You ever been there? A clash between what you know to be true and how you feel about life at this moment. You see the clash occurring. You ever read Hemingway? He's wounded in First World War. Doctors picked out 257 pieces of shrapnel out of his body. Never forgot the experience. But it wasn't so much the memory of the pain that stayed with him, it was how close he had come to death. He felt that it set him apart for the rest of the human race, for the remainder of his life, and so he recalled the men who shared the experience with him in the convalescent hospital. Some of them with faces reconstructed, iridescent, shiny from the work of the plastic surgeons back then. And they had been set apart by death. And they were suspicious of anyone who had not experienced what they had experienced. The problems of everybody else seemed trivial and shallow to them. So it was from this that Hemingway developed a formula for his novels. You put a good man into a situation where he comes face to face with death. Say in the arena fighting a bull. 
in combat. My favorite, the old man in the sea. You see just how true and deep his greatness is. You find something out about that man. The trial will not make or break him. It will reveal him. What David is doing at this point is that he takes number six and applies it to the moment of the hour of his challenge. And what you and I have to be reminded of is, is that more often than not in life, we lack explanations as to why we're going through what we're going through. But God knows we don't live by explanations as much as by promises. David doesn't know why the delay, but he does know where to turn in terms of a promise to help him through the delay. And he's not going to try to simply endure life in the midst of the delay. He's not going to merely try to escape life in the midst of the delay. No. He's going to enlist life in the midst of the delay. He is going to patiently work constructively upon his faith rather than passively allow life to work destructively upon his faith. Which is it for you? You see the wrestling match here between how long mentally, the beginning of verse 2, and his statement of every day emotionally at the end of verse 2. Do you have that tug of war that goes on inside you? And yet a fourth question, how long will my enemy triumph over me? We've got to understand he was God's chosen one to be the king. So he knows that this is opposition to God's will, God's purpose, God's design. He's got to understand that waiting is the rule, not the exception. And you may feel like you're the exception, but you're not. I winced in pain and I looked at my bloodied knuckles. In a rage, I'd slam my fist into the dashboard of my Volkswagen. Ben Patterson writes, as I drove home from our last date together, five years, I screamed into the headlining of the automobile. That's how long I had dated her, waiting and hoping that one day we'd be married. Now it was over. Nothing was working. It seemed, it felt as though God had reneged on the contract. Man, I had been a faithful Christian, good student, hard worker, upstanding, moral, sincere, so I thought. Loved her long, loved her well, but none of that got me the girl of my dreams. Man, I thought I kept the rules, held up my end of the bargain. Why hadn't God? I had waited so long, and now I'd have to wait some more. He writes in his book, Waiting. He married that girl. And she's had a significant impact upon Ben, who has served as a pastor in California. Four questions that God can handle. 
In challenging times, we must pose our difficult questions to God. Verses 1 and 2, stage 1. Wait for stage 2. Here it is. Number 2. In challenging times, we must plead our personal case before God. Notice how he now prayerfully comes before God. Look on me and answer me, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes. Let's camp on those phrases. There are three imperatives that he uses as he pleads his case before God. The first imperative, look on me. Which is interesting because he is beginning biblically now to answer the questions that he has posed. Remember what we said earlier, the questions were already part of the diagnosis. A quality question posed to the right source of perspective already sets us in forward motion movement toward answers regarding the critical issues of life and the wisdom we need. So he says, look on me in response to verse 1, how long will you hide your face from me? Isn't that interesting? You'll want to draw a line from one phrase to the other. Look on me. But the second imperative is an answer. Answer. But he doesn't leave it there. He adds, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the covenantal relational name for God. My God. See how personal he has made this? He is not going to allow for the duration of the trial to affect the proximity of the relationship. My God, not the God. Do you allow time to affect your relationship negatively with God? The delays of life? Waiting. Waiting on God is an investment, not an expenditure. My stomach nodded when the call came to rush to the hospital, the pastor wrote. It was the second time in four years I'd been called to be with this family for precisely the same reason. The parents had been awakened by disturbing sounds coming from their six-year-old daughter's bedroom. When they got to her bedside, they found her having seizures. Paramedics were called. She was taken to the emergency room of a nearby hospital, and a few hours later, she was pronounced inexplicably dead. Her older sister had died four years before at the same age, apparently of the same mysterious cause. Before this family came to our church, they had lost their firstborn, a boy, to a rare birth disorder. All three of their children had passed away. Last month we sat in their family room and talked of all this, and they're incredible people, thoughtful, mature, quick to laugh, Christians. Mature beyond years. Wonderful parents they had been. 
They have no doubt their children are with the Lord. Their questions have more to do with themselves. Questions. Why should they be chosen to bear such a singular burden? What does it mean? How does God expect them to live their lives now that they have lost their precious children? What is His purpose? Patterson writes, I wait with them for the answers. And David writes, Look on me and answer. But he doesn't put a period there. And neither should you, and neither should I. Look on me and answer, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, my, not merely the, God. And then his third imperative. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. He wants to be enlightened. You ever drive a country road you've never driven before? You can't see the directional signs. There are no street lights. And you're all alone. I find when I am driving on those country roads and settings I haven't been before, I only have one option. It's to follow my headlights. They don't enlighten the entire road. But they enlighten certain yards just ahead of my car. I don't see everything, but I see just enough to keep going. God does not show you everything, but He shows you enough to keep going. Give light to my eyes, or I'll sleep in death. My enemy will say, I've overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. And the word fall here, it's, it's, it's a word that has to do with the foundations being shattered and broken by the heavy weight upon you. It couldn't support you. What God is saying is that I've laid a foundation in my promised strategy for you. You've got a foundation upon which you can take your stand as we've sung. Three imperatives as you plead your case. Look on me, number one. Answer, number two. But make certain you say, oh Lord, my God. You've got to maintain that proximity with God. And number three, give light to my eyes, or I'll sleep in death. Our enemy, my enemy will say, I've overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. David is so aware of opposition to the will of God. But now, notice how he inches into the third stanza. See the word but? It's there for contrast. He's saying now, in light of all that I've said... Here's now where I stand. The word I in the Hebrew is emphatic. But I, he says, trust in your unfailing love. 
The word unfailing love in Hebrew, the Hebrew word hesed, has to do with God's loyal love. And when people in this world have been disloyal, you have found a basis to put your trust in one whose love is completely loyal. And so for you to be able to function in the delays of life, in the waiting period, you will find yourself in where you feel as though you are suspended in time between a beginning and an unending ending. You're waiting for that day. And you're wondering, where will clarification be found? In the meantime, you make this statement of certainty. I trust in your unfailing love. Notice where the certainty is in God's unfailing love. When all else has failed, David says, I trust. Do you? Evidence of this trust is that he says, My heart rejoices in your salvation. And yet he, hasn't, he has yet to be saved from this difficult experience, yet he's already rejoicing within it. You take now the word rejoicing, rejoices in verse 5, and draw an arrow back up to verse 4. And notice the contrast. Why in verse 4 he said, My enemy will say, I have overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall under the weight of this burden. Yet he says in verse 5, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. He is already has that inner sense of conviction and certitude that God's hesed is for him and is for you. So he says, I will sing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. He's been good to him. God has been good to him even though everybody else hasn't. He is focused upon God, not on others. And he says, he has been good to me, past tense. In other words, he sees this as signed, sealed, and delivered. Furthermore, I notice that capital L-O-R-D is found in stanza 1, stanza 2, and stanza 3 as he sequentially works through these stanzas to come to personal resolution in his life on how to handle the delays of life. And he keeps the Lord central to this process. So that leads you now to this, uh, this third stage that we've covered, and it's this number 3 that in challenging times we must place our complete trust in God. You need to do that now. You need to be able to say, He has been good to me. It's not enough to say, and I hope that He will be good to me. The statement of trust knows when to make a past tense statement about the future. He has been good to me. And so there's George Danzig, and he's, and he's facing the challenge of a lifetime, and it looks as though he has not passed the test, and he will join the ranks of those through the Depression era who are struggling to eke out an existence, and he asks, God, why the delay? When all of a sudden there's a knock on his door. It's the next morning. He's awakened by this heavy knock and says, Professor, 
He's excited. George. George, he kept shouting. You've made mathematics history. I didn't know what he was talking about. And then he explained. I had been delayed coming to class and had missed his opening remarks. He had been encouraging the class to keep trying, even if they found some problems in life difficult. Don't put yourself down, he said. Remember, there are classic unsolvable problems no one can solve. Even Einstein was unable to unlock their secrets, and then he wrote two of them on the blackboard. Because I was delayed, I didn't know they were unsolvable. I thought they were part of the test. Now I know they were, but in the bigger scheme of things. So I was determined I would work them properly, and I, I solved one. It was published in the International Journal of Higher Mathematics. My professor gave me a job as his assistant. And I have been at Stanford teaching ever since. And as the interview closes, he looks piercingly at the interviewer. I'm going to ask you a question, he asked. If I hadn't been delayed, do you think I would have solved that problem? I don't. He says, delays, they're not denials, they're part of the design. Let's stand together. And in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son. You are the God of time. You are the God of timing. We accept the fact that we're not going to have all the explanations to life. We have been given the promises to see us through life. The Holy Spirit to guide us in life. Jesus Christ, who died to give us life. So, Father, I pray that where there is a duration when it comes to trial, there won't be distance between us and you. Help us to invest the waiting times like David and turn psalms of lament into songs of praise. All for your glory. My prayer is these six verses have met some needs this morning. Love each one here, Father. And give them a sense now of your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.